The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. I'm sure it's happened to you before where you opened up the Word of God, and as you read, everything that it says seems to resonate with you. That as you read what God is saying in His Word, you find yourself amening just about everything that's, that's being said. That you follow along, you understand what it's saying, and that you agree with it. We read of Christ coming at Christmas, and we sing these Christmas songs we've just sung. Each year, I think the story becomes more precious to us. Every year we read it, and we say, that's, what a wonderful thing, what an awesome thing, what an incredible thing. We, we just gain a little bit more and more understanding of what it means that God sent his Son. I was driving home this past week uh, to my house, and as I was driving home to my house, which makes sense because you really only drive home to your house, um, the song came on the radio. It's one that we've sung in, our, in a Christmas thing we did a few years ago, and uh, the lyrics of the song went, the God who made us all with these two little hands is bringing us his kingdom quiet as a lamb. Oh, such amazing grace a divine conspiracy. This Savior in a manger changes everything. And that's why we sing. And I'm, I'm usually a pretty hard guy, I think. Um, but I just find myself welling up as I read that part about the Savior in the manger changing everything because I thought, he does change everything. He's changed everything about my past and everything about my life now and everything about my future and, and everything about who I am has been changed by Christ, has been changed because God sent a Savior to be born in a manger. And so we read things sometimes, and we just wholeheartedly agree because they're truth, because they're in the Word of God, and because we we love those things. But I think that sometimes we read the Word of God, and it does not resonate with us. Sometimes we read the Word of God, and instead of, wholeheartedly agreeing, we flinch, and we squirm a little bit, and we struggle to figure out how what we just read doesn't mean exactly what we know it means. We find ourselves trying to get away from what the Bible is calling us to, or get away from what the Bible is teaching, because it's just grating against our flesh. It's grating against our our natural man that is still within us, And so we find ourselves saying, I don't want that part. I want to figure out how to write that part out of the Bible. And the truth is, these are good times for us. Because it's at these times that we determine whether we trust the word of God or whether we trust ourselves. If we trust ourselves, then every time that the Bible says something we disagree with, we will find a way to alter it. We will find a way to change it. We will find a way not to follow it. But... If we believe the word of God, then when we come to these places where our thoughts and our understanding collides with what the scripture clearly teaches, then we say, am I going to obey myself? Am I going to follow myself? Or am I going to allow the word of God to be the authority in my life? And it's a good thing for us to to come across this sometimes. It's an opportunity to change. It's an opportunity for growth. So, with that said... Let me ask you a few questions that I'm sure that you've thought about over the past few weeks. How does a Christian support and pray for a prime minister 
who has demanded that all candidates in his party fully support the killing of babies in the womb. How do we, as Christians, support and pray for a prime minister like that? Do we revolt? Do we smear him? Do we call him names on Facebook? Do we refuse to pay our taxes? Exactly what is a Christian to do in the situation that we're in? What should we do about the Syrian refugees? What should we, who should we support? How should we act? How should we think about the Syrian refugees? I think this question might be a more controversial question among Christians and non-Christians than about any question imaginable today. Certainly there are a lot of controversies, but this is one that's being talked about a lot. And so how exactly is a Christian to respond to our government who has decided to bring so many of them into our country? There is no easy answer, and I'm not going to presume I have it. I think there are a lot of people that probably walked in this room believing they do have it. Um, And I hope we would learn by now that we should have a little bit more humility than that. We do not know all the answers. We do not know everything. What we can know for sure is what the Word of God teaches. What is the believer's responsibility to the government of a country in which they live? Maybe you think you know. And to you, I'd advise some humility. Maybe you don't care, and to you, I would say you should. The truth is, you will leave here with not all the answers to these questions. You, I mean, I don't have them, right? But what we're going to do today is we're going to read and study a passage that I think impacts how we think about these questions and how we should, as Christians, answer them. And so I hope, by God's grace... We will leave here doing our best to think more biblically about these questions and many others that we will run into. Over the past few months, I've been in the book of 1 Peter, so if you turn your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're in chapter 2, and we'll begin reading at verse 13 in a moment. Thus far in Peter's letter, he's writing to strangers in the land that they live. So he's writing to believers who find their home in heaven, and they're not finding their home now on this earth. They're not citizens of this earth like they once were. Their home is heaven. And this is what he's called them so far in the letter. He's called them strangers of the land that they live, elect of God, those who are alive and have a living hope, those who have an inheritance in heaven, those who are kept by the power of God, children of God, the redeemed, Those who are born again, living stones, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. And the word peculiar there means exclusively belonging to God. They are the people of God. They are pilgrims and strangers on this earth. We're not going to go through that list extensively. Um, But Peter's making the point about the fact that they have put their faith in Christ, and because they've now put their faith in Christ, they have a new king, they have a new father, the world is not their home, that their home is in heaven, and we are now possessors of eternal life, so we should be living this life with an eternal perspective. And that's important for us to get, because that is not what you have done up until the point that you got saved. And so your entire worldview and the way you thought about everything was not from an eternal perspective 
prior to the moment that you accepted Christ as your Savior. And my guess is that it wasn't just miraculously changed as soon as you trusted Christ. A lot of these things about thinking eternally. Now, you were given the Holy Spirit when you accepted Christ. You were born again. You were a new creature. But we still have that old man and those old old thoughts and those old ideas living with us. And so it is essential for Christians to train themselves to think with an eternal perspective, to think biblically. And so with that said, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 13. The Bible says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. Peter begins by commanding them to submit to every ordinance of man. An ordinance of man is an institution of man. It is the way in which people organize their authority. It is their government. And so he begins by saying, submit yourself to the government. The command is to submit, and the first person he mentions is to the king for Peter, the king, would have been Emperor Nero. So here he's saying, you need to submit yourself to Emperor Nero, and not just to Emperor Nero, but to the governors that Nero appoints, and to the Roman soldiers who serve them. Already, I think this text hits us like a ton of bricks. Are you kidding, Peter? Do you know who Nero is? Do you know how he thinks about Christians? Do you know how he's taking and will take more and more of your brothers and sisters in Christ and imprison them and beat them and persecute them and kill them in torturous ways? Peter, do you not understand who you're talking about? Don't you know that soon you will be crucified upside down at his command? Peter, you got to have it wrong here. Come on, man. Submit yourself to a king like that? Submit yourself to his governors? Submit yourself to the Roman soldiers who do his bidding? Seems pretty tough for us. I think we often consider God's commands to be true in ideal situations. Like, submit yourself to the government. Yes, absolutely. I will submit to a government who is believing and practicing everything I think that they should believe and practice. I will submit to a government who is a Christian government, who uh, loves the Lord, has the word of God as their final authority for their faith and their practice. I will submit to the ideal government. And the fact of the matter is, the government that Peter is speaking about here is much worse than ours is. Much, much worse. The government that Peter is speaking about here is terrible. Peter is speaking about a tyrannical mass murderer. I don't presume to know your thoughts about Trudeau or about Obama or about other leaders in this world, but I would imagine that Nero would rank with the worst of them. And yet he says, submit yourself to the king. Peter was living in an environment that was far more degenerate and more anti-Christian than we are today. 
Now, I know you'll say, and you'll be right in saying that it seems like North America is headed down the same path. We are on that trajectory where Christianity is being less and less accepted in our culture. But can I tell you something? We are not nearly at the level that they were at yet. And we're probably a little ways away from there. And so Peter says, in, in this terrible environment, to submit yourself to this maniacal dictator, to the wealthy governors, and to the greedy tax collectors. Really? Submit to them? I don't know if, about you, but I, I wonder if it's rubbing you the wrong way yet. The Word of God tends to do that sometimes, and this is one of the times it does it for me. Finally, I think when we look at this verse and these verses... The word submit, all by itself, is a dirty word in our culture, right? I mean, I think all of our culture thinks of submission as like repression, like it's this forced submission that elevates the value of one person over another person and says, you who are less valuable, you who are of less worth, needs to submit to those who are of a higher class and more importance than you. And that is not the biblical definition of submission. It is, it is farthest from that truth. The biblical definition of submission is a choice that one makes to willingly put themselves under. It is a matter of roles and not a matter of importance, and not a matter of value or worth. It is God-ordained roles. So Peter says, it is God's ordination, it is God's will that you submit yourself to the government whether to the king or the governors or to them that do his bidding. Verse number 15. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So God's will for you concerning your government is that you submit to them. Why? Because it is a good testimony for the gospel of Christ. Because in doing so, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. When believers act this way, it is shocking to the people around them. I mean, wouldn't it be shocking to somebody who, when you're oppressing those people, it seems like those people are still willingly submitting to you, who are still honoring and obeying you? That's a, that's a pretty awesome thought, a, a very countercultural idea. That was how Jesus taught. That they were persecuted and they did not react with disdain or vengeance. They did not attack. They did not organize an army to fight, that they took it. That they were oppressed and they prayed for their enemies. It says, this is a testimony to the gospel. Now, I know some of you are already thinking, yeah, but, I mean, someone does that to me, I'm going to fight. Okay, you, you might. You might think that way. But let's, let's just wait until we get to the end of this, because I think we'll find at the end that our weapons of warfare are a lot more powerful than theirs. Verse number 16, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. So don't, don't use the freedom you have to cover up your evil. I have this freedom, so now I can do whatever I want. Now I can live however I want because I, I've been given this freedom. I've been granted forgiveness, and now I'm a child of God, and now I can live the way I want to. I can act the way I want to. He says, don't do that. Instead, live as servants of God. So he says, you are free but you're not free to just live however you want to. You're free to now serve God. It's, it's almost this oxymoron that we're free servants of God. 
That is what we are, and that is the best thing to possibly be. We have this omnibenevolent, awesome, all-knowing, all-powerful God who is the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, and he has called us and chosen us and adopted us as his children. He loves us. He sent his son to die for us, and now he says, you can be my servants. And that is an awesome privilege. This is an incredible thing, the position that we have as believers in Christ. And so now we use this freedom not to keep doing the sin that, that put Christ on the cross. We use this freedom to serve our awesome God. Verse 17, honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. If you wanted a summary of, to know how you're supposed to act within our culture, to the people around us, to the unsaved world around us, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, to your government, Peter gives it to us in four commands. He says, number one, believers are to honor all men. They are to treat every person with dignity and respect since all human beings are created in the image of God. All human beings are loved by God. And so we are to treat them with dignity and respect. He says, love the brotherhood. We need to be reminded of the priority of love, to love the members of the family of God. What a sad thing it is when you look out on a church and you know that the person sitting over here is sitting there because they won't sit beside the person over here. And the person back there won't sit with this person up here. And they're not going to talk to each other. And when they see each other on the street, they're just going to kind of pass by on the other side of the street. What an awful thing it is that we are part of the family of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, that we've been equally viewed ourselves as sinful and in need of a Savior, that we've gone to Christ for forgiveness and cleansing, and now we have no forgiveness for our brother and sister in Christ. That's not okay. You love the brotherhood. Love the family of God. And love in the Bible, you probably know this by now, it's not just this crazy emotion that gets you tingling. Love in the Bible is action. Love is saying, I am going to treat you with love. I am going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to be selfless for you. I'm going to act in love. And so we are to act in love toward one another. This is number three. Fear God. And here we see something peculiar because God is to be feared and not the king. God is to be feared and no one else. God is to be feared because he is the sovereign Lord and we ultimately answer only to him. And so we fear God and we honor the king. Believers are to honor the king and show him respect because of his office. You're not to fear him. We don't fear our government. And we never worry about what they're going to do to us because we're following the Lord. We fear God, but we do honor the king and we show them the respect that he deserves because of his office. And so this morning, what I'd like to do in the next few minutes, I want to bring this passage down to our own lives by asking a series of practical questions that hopefully this text will help us answer, right? And once we have these answers, and once we're kind of on the same page here, then you can take this information and this text and the truths that are in it and apply it to all the other questions that you're going to answer of our government and how we should act toward them in the future. Number one, what should the believer's attitude toward the government be? If you're you're a blood-bought child of God, What should your attitude, your inclination toward the government be? And I think Peter teaches here that we should have a general attitude of submission and obedience. 
we understand that any government in place is ultimately there by God's decree. That the government is ordained by God. It is God's will that we submit to them. Do you realize that it wasn't, the government was not man's creation? That was God's creation. God is the one that, that, that forms governments. God is the one that allows people to be in power. Do you remember when Jesus is speaking to Pilate and he says, you would have no power unless my father gave it to you. That's, that's true for all political leaders. The only power they have is from God. And so we are to have an attitude of submission and obedience. Now, I want you to understand that this is not a blanket statement. This is not an unquestioning submission to everything they ever ask. The only person that you are ever to fully submit to is God. Okay? The only person that any Christian should fully submit to is God. Not to their husband, not to their parents, not to the church, not to the elders, not to the pastor, not to the pope, not to any other person, not to the government. The only person we fully submit to unquestioningly is God. We submit as long as submission does not require disobedience to God. And so we fear God and he is first. And we submit to him in all things. And if at any point submitting to somebody that God has put in authority over us requires us to disobey God, then we say no and we obey God. Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, there is two situations where the apostles are arrested for preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ. And in, in those verses, we find the, the religious leaders, the people who are in charge of the temple, who would have been like the ordinance of man, the institutions of man in that day. They had a lot of political authority. We find those people telling them, telling the disciples, do not any longer teach or preach in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't mention him. Don't talk about him. Stop evangelizing people. And we hear Peter's response. He says, we will obey God rather than men. We will obey God rather than men. However, that doesn't mean that we have a free pass to disobey the government all the time. It doesn't mean we have a free pass not to submit to the government because we just claim to be submitting to God. This passage, if we are going to submit to God, teaches us that our default inclination toward the government is submission, obedience, and honor. Submission, obedience, and honor. What is submission? Well, it's willingly putting yourself under. Obedience. You you do what's asked of you. You do what you're supposed to do. You be a good citizen. Honor. You think well of. You respect. You give them the dignity that that they deserve because of their office. This is how a Christian should act. And can I remind you, he's talking about Nero. He's saying this about the man that will someday flip him upside down on a cross and crucify him. And it's already killing people in the name of Christ. And it's going to get worse and worse. And so this is how we, if they were, certainly we are, to think of our government this way. Though we would disagree with many positions that our government takes, we should have an inclination of submission and honor. And at those points where our government disobeys the word of God and commands us to do something different than what the Word of God teaches, that is where we stand against the government. 
but it's that place. Here's Paul's take in Romans chapter 13. If you want to turn your Bible to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, Paul speaks in detail about the same issue. He says, Let every soul be subject unto higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be, or the governments, or the authorities, or whatever that be, are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Okay, and that word damnation there is not eternal damnation, it's destruction. Okay? So they, they, will, they will have trouble and difficulty because of their response. And he's saying that's, that's a good thing. They should go through difficulty if they're resisting the power that has been ordained by God. Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have the praise of the same. But he, for he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. Now, you understand here that, Peter, that Paul is living in the same world. And Paul is dealing with a government who is not all good. A government who is, in many ways, evil. But what's happening here is we're learning that a government that is organized even by an emperor like the one they have is still better than no authority at all. If mankind was able to just run themselves and there was no type of authority and no people enforcing any kind of laws, it would be much, much worse than the Roman day that Paul and Peter experienced. And so he's saying... Even though, even if they might in some ways be evil and they do some things wrong, having them there is ordained by God and having them there is better than not having them there. He goes on in verse 6. For this cause pay ye tribute also. For this reason pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Okay? Paul is quite clear, I believe as is Peter. And so, what should the believer's attitude toward our government be? We should have an attitude of submission, obedience, and honor. What should we do when we disagree with the government? Question number two. What should we do if we disagree with the government? So the government says we should do something, we disagree. The government says we should, in our land, adopt a practice or adopt a group of people or create a law that is against what we believe. What should we do? I'd like to say that your hands are not tied. But in many ways, they are. Thankfully, God's hands are not. And so Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2 help us. Isaiah 59, verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. It says, God can hear. God can save. God is powerful. God can do things. But do you hear what he's saying? He is not dull of hearing that he cannot hear. And he explains to the people of Israel why there's such a problem in their land. In verse 2, he says, But your iniquities, your sins, have separated 
between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. And so you, as a citizen and as a Christian, are in many ways bound to what the government says, that you have no say, that you have nothing you can do. But we do have this one thing. We do know that we serve a God who is all-powerful, whose hands are not short, or that his, his arm is strong. He can save, he can work, he can change. In Acts chapter 12, back in Acts again, um, Peter is thrown into prison by Herod. And Herod has just killed the apostle James. And so we know Herod is willing to kill. We know he's willing to go all the way. And he's doing it to garner favor with the people of Israel. And so they know that the stakes are really high. And do you know what the Christian community does? Well, they organize a revolt, right? They organize a party to break him out of the prison to save his life so that he will not be killed like James. No, that's not what they do. You probably know the story. They get in an upper room together, and they pray. And they pray, and they pray, and they pray. And God sends angels to open the prison doors, and Peter is miraculously saved. See, in that case, if they would organize themselves together and organize the militia and gone against the government, they might have killed a few Roman soldiers, but they would have been destroyed. They would have been defeated completely. But instead, they got on their knees and they talked to the one who is all-powerful, and God acted, and God worked. And so, yeah, your, might, your first response to me might be, I'm just going to stand up and fight against the government. Yeah, but if you do that, you're probably going to lose. I mean, you're almost surely going to lose. And why would we do such a foolish thing when we have an all-powerful God that we can speak to? Who is in control? Who can change things at any moment he wants to? What if we got back to using the weapons that God has given us? In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul lists the weapons of our warfare. He lists what a Christian has. He says, we have the belt of truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have um, feet that are shod with the preparation of the gospel. We have the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, I want you to notice the things that he says at the end here. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We have the sword of the Spirit, that's the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. And in the very next verse, Paul asks the Ephesian church to pray for him that he would be bold. And so do you get what's going on here? They're facing all of the same difficulties and worse than what we're facing in our day now. And Paul says, you do have some armor. You have these things. You have the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. You have the opportunity to go to the throne of God in prayer. So we have prayer and the word of God. Alistair Begg said, you will never know that God is fighting for you until you take off all the other armor that gives you the notion that you are defending yourself. The church of Jesus Christ is clad in the armor of Saul and is unable to respond to the cries of Goliath. That's a really, really awesome quote. 
What he's saying here is just, just drawing our minds back to this picture where David, who's a shepherd boy, who is not a soldier, who is too young to be fighting, goes in, out against a nine-foot giant who has been fighting his entire life, who is calling all of the men of Israel to come and fight him, and every single one of those trained soldiers is terrified of him. And David, this young shepherd boy, goes out. And first he tries to put on Saul's armor, and he just he can't move in it. He looks foolish in it. And so eventually he gets to the point where he says, you know what, I'm, I got my raw, my sling, I got a couple stones, I'm going to go out, I'm going to kill Goliath, I'm going to cut off his head. And so you know what he does? He goes out with his sling and his stones, and believing and trusting in the power of God, and there's miraculous deliverance. And, and Alistair Begg is saying, this is what's going on. We are fighting, we're, we're trying to fight so hard in our own strength, rather than relying on the power of God to fight for us. And until we are willing to take off all of that clunky armor, and actually face the giant with just the power of God, we're never going to know if God is fighting for us or not. We're never going to know if God is doing something incredible that only he could do. Because we're fighting so hard all by ourselves. So does prayer work? I believe so. I think the Bible clearly teaches it does work. Um, I can definitely tell you that not praying doesn't work. Do you know that the church in just about every difficult place on the earth today is seeing God's hand move in a mighty way? You know, over in China, a lot of places in the Middle East, and a lot of places in India, and a lot of parts of Africa, there is just incredible movements of God. The gospel is going forth in a lot of those places in amazing ways. And do you know why? Because they don't have any other weapons. Because they have nothing else to fight with. They have prayer and they have the word of God, and that's it. And so God is doing incredible things on their behalf. Casting Crowns wrote a song a while back, and it's called, What If His People Prayed? And and they write, What if his people prayed, and those who bear his name would humbly seek his face and turn from their own way? And what would happen if we prayed for those raised up to lead the way? Then maybe kids in school could pray, and unborn children see the light of day. What if the life that we pursue came for a hunger for the truth? What if the family turned to Jesus, stopped asking Oprah what to do? I think a lot of what we're doing, right? We're going to the world's philosophies. We're going to the world's ideas. We're, we're trying to base our lives. And, and, and all at the same time, calling ourselves Christians who love the word of God and follow it and keep it on our shelves and never really read it. And, and say that we believe in the power of prayer and then spend maybe a few minutes before meals every day praying. We believe all the right things, and we're not doing it. What if we were to just pray? What if we were just to, to get into the Word of God? Maybe we would see God do wonderful things in our families, in our marriages, with our kids. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 4, sorry, verse 14 says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. There's got to be something to prayer. It's in here a lot. We have prayer and we have the word of God. We have the truth. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul speaks about the fact that what we have is the word of God. What we have is the foolishness of preaching. And though to the world it looks like the foolish thing ever, what's happening today to the world looks foolish. This is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.20, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? He's saying, compare all of the wise philosophies every wise man has ever lived to God, and don't you see that beside God, they all look foolish. They all are foolish. He says, for after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. So, so God made the world, but, but in their own wisdom, the world says, we don't need God. We're not going to follow God. He says, it pleased God that by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. There's something about the preaching of the word of God. And so what, what weapons do we have? Well, we have the sword of spirit. Right? We have our prayers, the shield of faith. We can pray and we can preach. We can get into the word. We can speak to our Heavenly Father. We often think that if only the church would rise to a position of authority in our land, then all would be well. If only everybody in the government would get saved. If only we could elect all believers in Christ, then we'd be so much better off. Can I tell you something? That type of thing where the church was basically in power over most of the world, has already happened. It happened back in the Middle Ages. It happened from about the 9th century to the 14th century, where the Roman Catholic Church was the political power to be reckoned with. It wasn't that the world was better off then. There's a story of St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, in the story, I'm not 100% sure it's true, but it's a great story. Um, so I'm going to tell you with the caveat that it's probably not true. Um, Aquinas went to take a tour of the Vatican. And the Pope was so amazed by his wealth and by all that they possessed that he wanted to take Aquinas on this tour. And so at this time, the 13th century, the, the Catholic Church is at the height of its glory. I mean, it's, it's as wealthy as you can imagine. And the Pope is showing off the wealth of the church. And then he said these words. No longer does the church have to say, silver and gold have I none. To which Thomas Aquinas responded. And no longer can the church say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Right? So if we can win a secular war, are we better off? Are we really spiritually better off if we can figure out a way to take over our country? If we can figure out a way to make everybody conform to the policies that we would have our country to live by? Absolutely not. What we need for our country is the gospel. What we need is people to live out their faith. What we need is for people to, to walk away from their sin and say, yes, I know my sin is alluring, and yes, I know I love it, but I love Christ more. And I'm going to stop that because of my love for him. And I'm going to try and be a testimony to my land even when it hurts a little bit. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get into the word of God. I'm going to live this life with an eternal perspective. We need men and women who believe in the word and trust in the power of God. Men and women who love the Lord so much they long to know what he has said. And they long to speak to him in prayer. Men and women who are humble enough to change their thinking when their thinking collides with the word of God. 
men and women who truly believe that the gospel is powerful enough to save. Alistair Begg says, we cannot have an apostolic gospel that remains foundational and timeless at the point we choose. And then remove it at any point of inconvenience to us. We can't say we believe the Bible and the gospel when it's convenient, but at any point it's inconvenient, say, I'm going to do my own thing. That is what the church needs to recognize. I hope that's what we're, what we're learning about today. Um, we can't honestly praise God for his forgiveness and then balk at his command to submit. The gospel is about submission. You realize that? Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father, and he died for us. And because of that, we ought to submit ourselves to the will of the Father. And that means for us, treating, thinking of, honoring, submitting to, obeying our government. That means we get on our hands and knees, and we pray like crazy that God works. And it means that we get into his word, and we know him, and we know what he wants for our lives, and he knows, we know what he want, how he wants us to live. Let's pray.